In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birshka, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bila, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedoleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shabbat Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to El Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedoleomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, three hundred and eighteen of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. There is a lot going on in Genesis chapter 14, and I thought I'd just draw it all out for you. Uh, first of all, you might recognize this is the Mediterranean, this is the Red Sea, and this is the Persian Gulf. That's the Dead Sea. So we've got uh, the Med, the Red, and the Dead. And you might recognize that up here is kind of modern day Turkey. Up here would be modern day Iraq. Up here would be modern day Iran, the Arabian Peninsula, Egypt. And here we are, the Promised Land, Canaan. So this is where the events take place. And the first thing that Genesis 14 tells us about is the four kings. So first we have the king of Shinar, then we have the king of Elassa, his name is Ariok. Then there's Kedalama, king of Elam, he is the big daddy of those four kings. And then the fourth king is Tidal, king of Goyim. So these are the four kings, and they have their designs on the five kings of Canaan. So they want to come down here and they form an alliance under the headship of the king of Elam, Kedalama. Now, gathered around the Dead Sea, 
or the Salt Sea, as it's called here, are the Five Kings. And here are the Five Kings, roughly speaking. You've got the King of Sodom, you've got the King of Gomorrah, you've got the King of Admar, you've got the King of Zeboim, and you've got the King of Zoar. There they are. So this really is the story of four kings versus five kings. And really, it's not a case of goodies versus baddies. This is just power versus power. To begin with, the four kings rule over the five kings. And then after 12 years, the five kings rebel against the four kings. And uh, they are successful to begin with in their rebellion. But eventually, the four kings come and make war on the five kings and they carry off all the goods and all the people from these different towns. Now, Lot is in Sodom, and uh, he is carried off by the four kings. One figure we haven't considered yet is Abram. Now, Abram lives by the oak trees in Mamre. He has been in tents while everybody else lives under kings and in cities. So he's a very different kind of person. In fact, he's described as a Hebrew. It's the first time that the word is used. He sits outside the system. That is what Hebrew means, actually. Hebrew means that Abram is from beyond. He's not really a part of this struggle of superpowers. And so this Hebrew, he has come up out of Egypt and he lives by the oak trees in Mamre. So Abram's story is that in Genesis 12, he's come up out of Egypt. In Genesis 13, he has spied out the land. That's an I. And now in Genesis 14, he has a conquest of the land. That's a sword. Abram's story is that having come up out of Egypt with great goods, he has spied out the land, the promised land that the Lord has given to him. He has not dwelt in cities because he's looking forward to the promise of God, the city with foundations whose maker and builder is God. He spies out the land. He understands the promises of the land, but he is not seduced by the cities like his uh, relative Lot. Lot had been uh, pitching his tent outside of Sodom. And in Genesis 14, we realize how uh, Lot has now being corrupted to some degree. He is now inside the city gates of Sodom and he has carried off. But never mind, Abram, the conqueror, he will raise the 318 men from his household, which means that Abram has a very large household. Thousands of people are in his household. He raises up the 318 men and he goes and he fights them back all the way up to Dan, up the way to north of Damascus. Basically, he kind of runs them off his land, the promised land. And then once he's uh, retrieved Lot and all their possessions, he comes back down to Hebron. And there he will meet an interesting character called Melchizedek, but more about him next week. So that's the story of Genesis 14. We've got the four kings making war against the five kings. And then we have Abram, the one brought up from Egypt, the one who spied out the land and the one who makes conquest of the land in order to redeem his household and bring them all back to Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem. That's Genesis 14.
Hello, my name is Glenn Scrivener. If we haven't met before, I'm uh, Emma's husband. I'm Ruby and JJ's dad, and it's great to be back at Emmanuel. Uh, love you guys, and uh, love sharing with you from the Word. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 14, and you might have gotten lost in all that detail. Uh, what we're going to do now is see that all that detail actually explains your world. It really does. Uh, and to help you to understand that, uh, I'm going to ask you, do you know what a fractal is? You want to know what a fractal is? Um, fractals are geometric shapes that at whatever scale you look at, they have the same shape. So it doesn't matter if you've zoomed right in on the fractal, it has a certain shape. You zoom back and it's got the same shape somehow. You zoom back, it's got the same shape. You've got the, you zoom back, it's got the same shape. You can Google it later. Don't double screen me now, but you can, you can Google it later and you can get these really trippy visions where as you zoom in and in and in and in, it is exactly the same pattern. And what we'll see here from Genesis 14 is that the Bible is a fractal. At whatever stage you're at, at whatever scale you're looking, you're seeing the same pattern. So here in Genesis, we've got the story of Abram. And Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, he's come up out of Egypt with great plunder. And in Genesis 13, he has spied out the land. He doesn't settle in the land. He, he trusts in the Lord's promise and looks ahead to the city with foundations, whose maker and builder is God. So he moves throughout the land, not making his home there. And then in chapter 14, where we are, he makes a conquest of the land and brings all things back to Jerusalem and a special king called Melchizedek. That's the story of Abram. But when you zoom back from the story of Abram, it might be familiar to you because the same pattern is the pattern of, of Israel. Israel itself came up out of the land of Egypt. Israel itself was wandering and spied out the land. That's the book of Numbers. And then Israel made conquest of the land and ended up in Jerusalem. And there was a special king as well. But that's not just the story at that level. We've got the Abraham level. We've got the Israel level. Then the whole thing gets done again in the life of Christ. What happens in Jesus' story? Well, in Matthew's gospel, right at the, at the outset, they go down into Egypt and come back up again. And Jesus wanders throughout the land. He's homeless. He has nowhere to lay his head. He's not invested in that particular land. But as he goes up and around the land, well, he makes conquest, a very interesting kind of conquest. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, the way you destroy your enemy is by making him your friend. That's an interesting kind of reconciliation, isn't it? You destroy your enemy in the most thoroughgoing way when you actually reconcile him, when you actually bring him back to be at peace with yourself. There's a brilliant time when Jesus actually, in, uh, in Luke chapter 19, it says in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho. And if you were to read that in the Greek, you would, you would see that, well, would you, would you read it as Jesus enters Jericho or would you read it as Joshua enters Jericho? Because Jesus and Joshua, it's the same name. But what is Jesus doing? He is recapitulating. He's redoing the story of Israel. And he goes into Jericho. And if you know the story in Luke chapter 19, he destroys his enemy, Zacchaeus. He destroys him by reconciling him, by bringing him back to be at peace with him. And at the end of the Jesus story, what does he do? He brings out bread and wine, just like the Melchizedek figure does in Genesis 14. And he brings a feast, having brought his 
work of peacemaking love into this world. And of course, we in the church, we, we do that whole story again. We, we are baptized, brought up out of our old slaveries. We live in this world by faith and not by sight, looking ahead to our, our future uh, hope. And we, again, carry on Jesus' world of, of, of conquest. His work of conquest is to make peace with those who would be our enemies. And so that peace is brought to the ends of the earth. Do you see how this fractal pattern is at play? And it means that as we are here in Genesis 14, we are confronted with a whole bunch of detail. And you think, well, how could this detail possibly relate to me? Well, it can relate to you because the Bible is a fractal. And as we look at the life of Abram, it's also the picture of Israel. It's also the picture of the life of Christ. And now in Christ, it's our life in the church and it's the destiny of the whole world. The pattern which we see here is the pattern of Christ. And Abram and, and Israel, they looked ahead to Christ. We in the church look back to Christ and, and the world is meant to be caught up into this same pattern of peacemaking love. So, Actually, Genesis 14 will have real-world impact on your week. And to see that, I just want to start by asking you two questions. Um, how do you live peaceably in a world of conflict? And how do you live distinctly in a world of temptation? I take it that those are live questions for you. Um, maybe you could bring to mind now a conflict that is really on your heart. And it might be at the personal level. It might be at a family level. It might be at a church level. It might be at a political level or a geopolitical level. There might be a conflict that is on your heart. Genesis 14 will teach us how to live peaceably in the midst of conflict. It will also teach us how to live distinctly in the midst of temptation. Are there temptations that are getting their hooks into you? Is something claiming your attention more and more? Is something claiming from you your life, your resources, your emotions, your energies? Is, is something getting its hooks into you? We'll see in the story of Lot that, that that is happening to him. And we'll see in Genesis 14 there are ways of living distinctively in a world of temptation. So with those headings in mind, let's um, dive into Genesis 14 and what I'm going to do is I'm going to notice for us uh, five things that are firsts in Genesis 14. At five points in this chapter, something happens that is the first time it happens in the Bible. And the first two things that are firsts in the Bible are in verses 1 and verse 2. The first things are kings. Genesis 14 verse 1 is the first time we hear about kings, and then it's no surprise that Genesis 14 verse 2, it's the first time we hear about war. Kings and war go together in the Bible. As, as certain as night follows day, so does war follow from kings. You'll notice that in this chapter, Abram is not called a king. There's only one king in Genesis 14 that comes out well, and we'll be dealing with him more next week when you have a look at Melchizedek. But Abram is not a king, and Moses was never a king. Joshua was never a king. None of the judges were ever kings. Um, really, Scripture is not into kings because it's subverting our power plays, and it's subverting our understanding of conflict and warfare. 
You might know in 1 Samuel 8, there's this famous time when the people ask Samuel, the prophet, will you give us a king? And actually, Samuel reports this to the Lord, and the Lord says, they don't want a king. Kings are trouble. The Lord says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. To have a king is to be involved in the military-industrial complex, and the Lord is totally against that. He says, warn them, warn the people that if you want a king, you're asking for war. The people still say, we, we want a king. We want to be like the nations. We want to be like everybody else. And so the Lord says, all right, so be it. And he gives them uh, a king, who is Saul. And Saul, you might know, is this big giant. And uh, he wages war the way that the rest of the world wages war. You might then know that the next king is the Lord's true choice as king. David, a shepherd boy, who overcomes the monster, Goliath in a surprising kind of way. Because the Bible is always trying to subvert these power plays. You might read about ancient battles in the Old Testament, and you might think that the the Bible is celebrating warfare. The Bible is absolutely not celebrating warfare. It is subverting it. You'll notice in Genesis 14 that the way Abram brings victory is not as a king trying to establish a kingdom. Abram is just a family man who is not building a city, he's building a family. And he just gets together people in his family, 318 soldiers. And the only reason why he enters into this fray is in order to save his relative Lot. He's not interested in the swirling power plays. He wants to build the household of faith. When it's called on, He enters into the fray, and so he gets these 300-odd soldiers. And and as soon as I say 300-odd soldiers, if you've read the Bible before, you might might think, I've read about 300 soldiers before, and that's not the film 300. It's not Sparta we're talking about. We're talking about Judges chapter 7. Do you know about the story of Gideon? Gideon wins this surprising victory over the enemy, and he has too many soldiers. There are, there are at least 22,000 soldiers at his disposal. And the Lord says, no, that's, that's far too many. We're, we're, not doing, we're not doing battle the way that the world does battle. Whittle them down, whittle them down, whittle them down until there's just 300. And the way they bring victory is actually by blowing trumpets and scaring their enemies away. Um, This is not Israel throwing its weight around. Israel has no weight to throw around. Israel is always David. The world is always Goliath. And yet somehow, through slingshots and trumpets, they, they gain this victory. You might know how actually the conquest of the land happens in the book of Joshua. They they gain a victory over these citadels, over these military installations, by walking around Jericho seven times and blowing trumpets. It's the ultimate David and Goliath kind of a story. It would be like if if today Malawi takes on the U.S. Army and defeats them by strumming guitars. It's, It's just, it is not the celebration of warfare. That's important to say as we come to this first battle in Scripture. The Bible does not celebrate warfare at all. It subverts it. It says every king in the world will lead you into battle. Every king except one. 
There's a king at the end of Genesis chapter 14. His name is Melchizedek, and he is the king of Salem. In Hebrew, it's the word shalom, or peace. There is only one king that actually leads to peace. And the scriptures are all about him. In this story, there is a a surprising victory for the household of faith. And through their strength in weakness, they they manage to gain a victory. But the Bible does not celebrate warfare at all. It subverts it. And it wants to bring us to the king of love, the king of peace, Jesus Christ himself. So how do we live peaceably in a world of conflict? Maybe you could bring to mind the conflicts that are on your heart, in your family life, in church life, in professional life, in in the political realm, in the geopolitical realm. What is the way forward? It's always the way of cheek-turning love. It's always the way of the true Melchizedek, the the true king of peace, who de-escalates the situation. You know, de-escalation is a a fantastic word to use in terms of conflict. You know what happens in de-escalation? Someone says something, and then everything in you wants to return in kind, return fire. And so you just get power versus power versus power versus power. How do you de-escalate? At some stage, you've got to absorb the blow and offer blessing instead. And what does that feel like? It feels excruciating, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it feels like the way of the cross. To absorb the wrath, to absorb the conflict, and to answer with blessing. And that, that's what we're called to do. Abraham kind of embodies it in in his tiny little um, household army going to battle, not to gain victory or power or a kingdom, but simply to rescue a relative. He models a way of cheek-turning love. He models a way of strength in weakness. And I wonder if the Spirit can lay on your heart, even this morning, a way of strength in weakness that actually handles the conflicts in your world. Be praying about that. How how can you model this very distinctive, peaceable mindset in whatever conflicts that you are drawn into? That's the first thing. How do we live peaceably in a world of, of conflict? But then also, how do we live distinctly in a world of temptation? Because here are another couple of things that are new in the Bible. In verse 12... It's the first time we learn about how Lot is in Sodom. Not just in the environs of Sodom, but now he has been seduced by the city. Now he's living inside the city of Sodom. And that is a real picture of temptation. Lot, uh, back in Genesis 12 and 13, he, he has seen the land and with his eyes he has wanted to grasp after Eden in this world. In uh, Genesis chapter 12 and 13, he, he looks out at the land that is before him and he says it looks like the garden of the Lord. Whereas Abram, he lives by faith and not by sight. And he says, look, look, Lot, you just go where you go. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. And Lot, having begun living by sight and having wanted to build Eden on earth by himself, he finds himself in the environs of Sodom, pitching him his tent outside the city walls, but then here in Genesis 14, he's in Sodom. That's new. And it's what temptation always does. It takes from us ever more of our attention and our emotional energy and our life from us. 
and it takes us further than we were ever prepared to go. On the other hand, in verse 13, here's another first in Genesis chapter 14. Abram is called a Hebrew. A Hebrew is one from beyond. That's literally what it is in uh, the Hebrew language. And it was always what outsiders were calling Israelites. Those who were beyond the Jordan River looked at Israelites and said they are from beyond. And they're not just from beyond geographically. They are from beyond in terms of their mindset, in terms of their values, in terms of their lifestyle. They are aliens. They are weird. And think of all the weird things that Abram demonstrates in these chapters, where everyone else is building a city and building a kingdom. Abram is pitching tents by the trees of Mamre, looking forward, says Hebrews 11, to a a city with foundations whose maker and builder is God. He's living very, very distinctly. He doesn't choose according to his eyes, but he hears the words of promise and lives instead by faith. He doesn't build a city, he pitches his tents. He doesn't proclaim himself king but he acts as family, building up the household of faith, not establishing a kingdom in this world. And when he's called on to engage the fight, he does not take sides. It's fascinating in this chapter. You might think that the four kings are the baddies and the five kings are the goodies. No, they're all baddies. Uh, the, the, the people of the five kings, they are sinning greatly, says chapter 13. And, and the four kings, they are horrible, despotic superpowers. All the worldly powers in this chapter are just involved in power plays. But Abram, is, he's not involved in a power play. He, he doesn't want to grasp and get and take and fight. When, he, when he's called on to, to love and rescue his relative, he will... He will do that for his, for his relative, for, for Lot. But he's not involved in that worldly power play. Why? Well, again, because Christ has been promised to him, right? The, the seed of Abraham has been promised to him. And the land that has been promised to him is a portent of the whole world. Abram is going to inherit the nations. He's going to inherit the world. He he doesn't need to grasp and get and take. And so Abram lives by a very different set of values. And, And so these two things are before us. And both visions are attracting Abram and Lot. There's a vision of the Lord that is attracting Abram to be ever more distinct, ever more from beyond. And there's a vision of paradise on earth. There's a vision of Eden, building Eden rather than clinging to Christ. And that has got its hooks into Lot. And and Lot is ever more being drawn towards that vision. And that that is the way. Either we are being drawn towards the Lord's countercultural, counterintuitive vision for life and we'll become ever more distinctive, ever more from beyond, or we'll have our eyes fixed on earthly cities and get ever more drawn into their power plays. Which will it be? Well, this is the final distinctive. The final distinctive is verse 16. It's the first time we read the word restored. Abram restores all those that have been lost. I don't know who you resonate more with as I, as I tell you the stories of Lot and of Abram. Who are you more like? Well, we want to be more like Abram, don't we? 
but we find ourselves more and more like Lot. What do we need to do? We need to put ourselves in the sandals of Lot. What are we? We are those who have been seduced by this world and eaten up by it. And yet someone from outside, through a surprising exercise of strength in weakness, a surprising exercise of cheek-turning love, someone from beyond has rescued us and brought us home, brought us to the true king of peace, who gives us the meal of bread and wine, the true king of, pre, uh, the king of peace, who is a priest giving us the blessing of God, the true king of peace, who gives us heaven and earth as an inheritance. We get restored by Jesus Christ. And the more that we fellowship with him, the more that we hear his blessing, the more that we eat the bread and the wine with him, the more our vision is taken from the things of this world and drawn up to his countercultural, counterintuitive kingdom, a kingdom of true peace. So this week, how are we going to live peaceably in the midst of warfare? Well, let's look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. How are we going to live distinctly in a world of temptation? Let's live again and look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall I pray for us? Let me pray. Father, we love you. We love your ways. We see how distinctive they are, how different they are. And we confess in our hearts that uh, so often we live by sight and not by faith. And we pray again that you would give us a vision of the true King of Peace. We pray that you would give us a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died to make peace with us, the one who rises again to give us the feast and to give us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Keep our eyes on him that we might live distinctively this week. Amen.